Good morning. Uh, let's navigate over to Jeremiah chapter 2. Open your Bible, get there on your phone or your tablet device. Those of you who are so tech oriented. We're studying the book of Jeremiah with a focus on uh, the prophet himself. Our text this morning is going to be Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 19. The topic, God illustrates Judah's backslide into sin as an exchange of fountain water for rainwater and runoff collected in reservoirs. The title of our message, The Backslide of Water. If you don't think that's funny, you're just in denial. (laughs) And if you don't understand me, you've never been on the Jungle Cruise. But anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. What joy was expressed in our worship this morning? I, I appreciate, Lord, the heart of worship that you've given us as a congregation, as individuals. We want to rejoice as we open your word and realize, Lord, that the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, loves us and desires to speak with us directly to us through this word. And though it pertains to Judah, delivered by Jeremiah in the 6th century BC, the words are just as living and powerful as they've ever been. And we pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us through them, that we would be in awe of your grace and mercy towards us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Coffee remains my favorite beverage, but I've become a fan of the world's sparkling mineral waters. The Italian effervescent water, San Pellegrino. How many of you have had San Pellegrino? Raise your hand. Love that stuff. One of my favorites. It's been produced for over 600 years. Its history can be traced to 1395 when the town borders of San Pellegrino were drawn. Leonardo da Vinci reportedly visited the town in 1509 to sample and examine what he called the town's miraculous, naturally carbonated water. He later wrote a treatise on the subject. Analysis shows that the water today is strikingly similar to the samples taken in 1782, which was the first year such an analysis took place. Imagine my disappointment when at a restaurant my San Pellegrino comes served over ice. Ice made from local tap water that runs through corroding metal pipes. I mean, why pay $3 for a bottle of water and put it over ice? I don't know what you think, but it's really silly to order a specialty water and then put ice cubes in it made from Hanford water. Seriously, some of you, I mean, you support the local economy, but you don't drink fountain drinks here in Hanford. You get the bottled stuff. Unless the mineral you really want in your water is arsenic, (laughs) then we've got a corner on that. I wonder, could we bottle Hanford water and sell it as arsenic? I mean, I'm probably getting in trouble. But anyway, why am I telling you all this? Water quality is a picture Jeremiah is going to use in the verses we're going to read this morning. He will portray God as a fountain of living water whom his people have forsaken. To satisfy their thirst, they look instead to the things in the world, which Jeremiah compares to drinking rainwater and runoff water that gathers and stagnantly pools in reservoirs called cisterns. 
I also seem to remember Jesus describing himself as a source of living water to you and I. So the question would be, might we ever forsake him for lesser polluted waters? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God forsaken remains your fountain. Number two, God forsaken appraises your cisterns. Let's take a look in verses nine through 13 at God, your fountain. I'm dying of thirst is a pretty accurate assessment of what can happen if you don't get enough water. An estimated 75% of Americans have mild but chronic dehydration. I believe I do. Are you one of those people that sips water all day, has your little water sippy with you all the time? I, I don't. Uh, I should, and every time I think about having another kidney stone, I hydrate, uh, but you know, I, I need to get with it because mild dehydration is a real problem. According to one source on the subject of water and dehydration, Water makes up more than two-thirds of human body weight, and without water, we would die in a few days. The human brain, 95% water. Blood is 82% water, and the lungs, 90%. A mere 2% drop in our body's water supply can trigger signs of dehydration, which are fuzzy short-term memory, trouble with basic math, and difficulty focusing on smaller print, such as a computer screen. Now, Jeremiah was dispatched to the people of Judah to urge them to repent of their backslidings and return to the Lord. Part of the 40-year message that he delivered was a warning that the Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar would come and besiege and overrun Jerusalem. The Jews believed they could withstand the siege. Not only had their kings, going all the way back to David, heavily fortified the city, there was in the city a system of of reservoirs called cisterns. They were dug out of the limestone. They were essentially just open reservoirs. One researcher noted that Jerusalem was literally honeycombed with massive cisterns that could hold millions of gallons of rainwater and runoff. Now keep all that in mind as we listen to this next section of Jeremiah's first sermon because it would be in the minds of the Jews uh, and they would see these analogies pretty strongly. And so verse nine says, therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. The phrase translated bring charges against you is interesting. It can refer to a legal proceeding where someone is being formally charged having the sense, obviously, of an accusation, but it can also simply be translated to plead with someone. God was definitely bringing accusations against his backslidden people, but he was nevertheless pleading with them, urging them to hear him and to therefore turn from their sin. When he says he will do it against your children's children, it indicates that he would be willing to plead with them for a long, long time. That, that he was willing to plead with them, but he was wanting them to repent. God, as our Father, he gives us more chances than we deserve. His warnings read like the parent who keeps giving their kid one more chance about 10 times. Don't you love that when you're out in the store? Especially if you've raised your children. And then you see these struggling young parents. If you do that one more time, if you touch that, Now that you've touched it, if you eat it, (laughs) Save Mart is a hotbed of child activity, I'll tell you. My favorite one, this really happened, I was in the bank uh, uh, quite a while ago, and this this mom was just having such a hard time with her 
little one. Uh, I almost wanted to help, and I thought, no, nah, I, I just need to stay out of this. And, uh, but at one point, uh, she, you know, the kid was just out of control, and, and it kept escalating until at one point she turned and looked at him and said, if you do that one more time, you are never watching television again. <laughs> now, you don't have to be very old to know that that's not true. That's just not true. That's a lie. The, the best way to deal with your child in the bank is to not take them to the bank, by the way. But anyway, the bank is for adults, uh, you know, to transact adult business and to play on their cell phones, but not for children. So anyway, uh, so God comes across like that sometimes. He, he like, you know, you read these warnings, it's like he's counting to three, but he doesn't follow three. He says, I'm pleading with you, you need to repent right now, and I'm gonna continue pleading with you through your children's children. And we see the history that for 40 years, he pleaded with his people, and we should be thankful for that. We should receive that as the grace and the mercy of God. It's like we sang this morning, if his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. I'm so thankful that the Lord doesn't immediately discipline me, but at the same time, it gives me pause, and sometimes I think I'm getting away with things. God is a pleader, but we should never take his pleas as a sign of inaction or weakness. His mercy and grace are great, but his long-suffering has its limits, and for our good and his glory, he will eventually discipline us. You know the history here. The Babylonians did come, and three times they came, and the third time they destroyed the walls and the city and the temple and carried away its plunder and its people. Verse 10, pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not even gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Picture Jeremiah pointing west toward Cyprus, then east toward Kedar to illustrate that the Gentile nations were loyal to their gods, even though they weren't really gods. They were inanimate objects. The Jews ought to have been sharing God, revealing God, the living God, to the other nations of the earth, I mean, what a, what a trade-off that is. Hey, you're worshiping a rock? I can show you the living God. Instead, they were exchanging the living God for the false gods of the Gentiles. They were going to say, hey, that rock looks pretty cool. Why? Because there were a lot of practices associated with worshiping these pagan gods. A lot of fleshly, sinful, lustful practices. Now, I'm sure there are many reasons we could cite why they were drawn to these gods, but among them is something we learn from a review of the life of Moses. In Hebrews 11.25, the Hall of Faith chapter, we're told that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin is pleasurable for a while. In fact, it is the immediate gratification that usually gets us. While God is asking us to wait, to be patient, to walk by faith, to believe he has a plan for our lives, the world comes and offers us things right now that promise to satisfy. If you're a parent, you are always trying to instill in your children the ability to think for themselves, to be patient, to wait for something better, to do what is right, those kinds of things. And kids, they have kind of a natural tendency to want to do everything right now. They want to grow up a lot faster than you want them to, but then they should, really. 
They always think that they can handle the greater freedom, that nothing is going to happen to them. And there's always that tension. And you, you know that you want to get them patiently and lovingly and you know, step by step to a certain place where they're going to enjoy the greatest quality of life, hopefully avoiding all of those pitfalls along the way. All the time they're telling you, but all my friends are doing this. To which you would answer, then you need new friends. Oh, you don't like that. Well, that worked for me. So anyway, uh, so that's the thing. So we can understand what God is. God, you know, as, as a Christian, that's what's happening. God says, now I've got this great life for you, but why don't you study the life of Abraham and see that it's gonna take time to unfold. You can't build something beautiful and precious and lasting and deep and wonderful overnight. And it's gonna take me time to build your life Don't go after the things in the world that promise you an immediate satisfaction but really can't deliver. And so to illustrate his point, Jeremiah turns to the metaphor of water. Now, we we care about water here in the valley, don't we? I see the signs, farmers need water, we're mad at Jim Costa and all the other politicians, and water's pretty precious, but still I can get up and turn on a faucet and get some kind of water that comes out of there, or I can buy water. I mean, water, you know, we have water. We don't have enough of it sometimes, but we have water. When you talk water in the sixth century to people living in these uh, you know, towns, this is serious stuff. They didn't have faucets. They didn't have running water, as it were. And so water is a pretty serious resource. And so Jeremiah says, let's talk about water. In verse 12, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Before he gets into it, he calls upon creation as a witness to the stupidity of the choices people were making. Not only was it something Gentiles refused to do, it was something that even inanimate objects in the stellar heavens would refuse to do. This phrase, verse 12, it's like God saying to the Jews, you guys are dumber than a rock. You you want this rock to be your God. You're dumber than a rock because they were going after that instead of him. And so in verse 13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's not bad enough that they're depending on the rainwater, the runoff, but they're gonna have cracks in it and they're not even gonna have that. And so he likened their backsliding to willfully exchanging clear, fresh, pure fountain water for stagnant rainwater and runoff. Not only was the water collected in cisterns not fresh, they could leak, they were hewn from limestone, there was no guarantee cracks would not form allowing the water to escape. Evaporation, of course, a problem as well. That thing that you and I want so badly to do that God has warned us in his word is sin, it seems at first like it will satisfy In fact, it can seem more satisfying than God because of the immediate pleasure it yields. But it's really like taking a drink of stagnant water. It's eventually going to give you spiritual dysentery. God holds himself out as a fountain of living water. By the way, I found out this week that the Hebrew word for prophet is nabi, and it's from a root meaning to bubble forth as from a fountain. And so if you're a Jew listening to Jeremiah's message, there's all of these layers of meaning. 
Jeremiah talking about water and the living fountain of water that God is, and they're looking at him thinking, God is actually speaking through him as a living, bubbling fountain of water, and yet with all of that, they're still going to reject God and forsake him and his word in favor of these temporary earthly pleasures. Jesus picked up on Jeremiah's illustration when he proclaimed himself the source of living water, which, by the way, indicates that he is God. He said this in John chapter seven, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Earlier in the Gospel of John, which uses water a lot, by the way, uh, to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus had offered himself as living water. He said in John chapter four, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Of the many associations we could make with water, the one the apostle John made in his gospel was this, John seven thirty nine. This Jesus spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so John tells us that God the Holy Spirit indwelling you as a believer, coming upon you is an endless supply of pure, living, fresh, spiritual water that will satisfy your deepest needs. Or you can exchange that fountain of living water for some hewn out cistern that you discover in the world. If you wanted to modernize this illustration, you could imagine yourself at a restaurant and instead of ordering San Pellegrino, without the ice of course, you ask your waiter, could you go outside and I saw an open running sewer out there, could you get me a nice drink of water from the sewer? Uh, first of all, I don't think they'd do it. But that's, that's the picture. And your waiter would say, now, are, are you sure? Well, yeah, I, I love chunky water. I just <laughs> like, to have, I like to have stuff in my water. I mean, it's crazy, but that's what Jeremiah, he was, this is, see, we, we miss the intensity of these kinds of things. We don't like to be grossed out, do we? This is gross. This, what Jeremiah is saying is, this is terrible. You're, you're gonna just exchange that? You, you know, that water, it needs to be boiled. And if, if the Jews were anything like the contestants on Survivor, they probably couldn't start a fire, you know? So you're not gonna have water. And so, you know, you've got this beautiful, fresh, effervescent water in endless supply, or you can drink water out of a stagnant pool that's rainwater. Some of you collect rainwater for your plants. They love it, but man, would you drink it? No. And, and that's the picture here. Start seeing the world as a place filled with stagnant pools that you ought not to drink from. Instead, you should offer those in the world who are lapping up that dead water the real thing, the living water that comes from Jesus Christ. In verses 14 through 19, God forsaken appraises your cisterns. The political situation comes into play in these next few verses. 
Notice quickly in verse 18, God speaks of the Jews drinking the waters of Sihor and Assyria. Sihor was a branch of the Nile River associated with Egypt, and so Egypt and Assyria are in play here. The Jews were seeking help, political help with military backing from both Egypt and Assyria. Those nations were vying for power against Babylon, and the Jews thought that by siding with them, signing treaties with them, they could be protected. And what's interesting is that trusting in Egypt or Assyria could not help Judah against Babylon because if you read the history of this, God himself was raising up Babylon to discipline his people. All they had to do to avoid the Babylonian captivity was to repent. But to say, we're not gonna do that, we're going to have a treaty with Egypt and a treaty with Assyria, they will defeat Babylon and we'll be fine It's insanity. Verse 14, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the people of Noph and Taphanus have broken the crown of your head. Noph and Taphanus were cities in Egypt. According to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I quote, this could refer to Pharaoh Shishak's invasion of Judah in 925 BC or to Pharaoh Necho's killing Josiah in 609 BC. In both instances, Egypt rather triumphed over Judah and shaved the crown of Judah's head. The irony of all this is that God had delivered the Jews from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They were no longer servants to Pharaoh, considered his home-born slaves. They had triumphed over the armies of Pharaoh with nothing more than a staff in Pharaoh's, or in Moses' hand. These guys, they, weren't, they were slaves. They, made, they were brickmakers. They didn't know Krav Maga. They didn't have wild ninja moves. They were backed up against the river, no place to go the most powerful army in the world riding chariots was hot on their trail, coming to destroy them. They looked to Moses and he said, well, I have a staff in my hand. And that staff in the hand of Moses who was in the hands of God destroyed the most powerful army in the world. This was their history, they knew this. And now centuries later, like, hmm, where can we look for help? Maybe to Egypt. Maybe that works for us. Not only that, we just read that these same Egyptians had recently killed her kings and plundered them. In other words, the Jews were submitting themselves to servitude to Egypt rather than to trust in the living God to defend them. The problem was they'd have to confess. They'd have to repent. They'd have to return to the Lord. And this they were unwilling to do because they loved their sin. Verse 17, have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? God leads you, but it is in his way. He has a way for everything, and you discover it by searching his written word, the Bible. For example, the New Testament books of Colossians and Ephesians, in them there are long, informative, insightful sections that describe the major relationships of life. Husband and wife, parents and children, employers and employees. Other passages tell us how to behave in the household of faith, the church. So at home, at work, in the church, that's where we live most of the time, and God tells us how. He shows us the way. 
And it's a way of sacrifice and service and humility. His way will yield a reward, but it's often deferred even beyond this life. And we must therefore trust him walking by faith. The world looks at those same relationships. They offer what appear to be solutions or shortcuts that promise immediate gratification. And thus we are constantly brought to a decision. Do we drink from the cisterns of the world or do we rely upon the fountain of living water? Verse 18, now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of their river? Allying with Egypt was bad enough. Allying with Assyria, this is just insanity. The Assyrians had earlier destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians were some of the most brutal people ever. Literally, they would take their captives and instead of just chaining them together, they used these giant fish hooks and they put them in your mouth and through your jaw and they drug you along uh, and if you couldn't walk fast enough, you were just drug on the ground until you were dead. And so if you're Judah, you're thinking, just a few hundred years ago, this is what the Assyrians did to our brothers and sisters in Israel, just a few miles from here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Let's go to Assyria for help. It's crazy. God used the expression, take the road. They were choosing their own way to take the road back to Egypt or Assyria. Joshua once said to the Jews, choose you this day whom you will serve. We might update that and apply it by saying, choose you this moment whom you will serve. Moment by moment, day by day, we make choices that either keep us on the way or are the world's road to bring us to some Egypt or Assyria that we believe will satisfy us. And then verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. I don't know how many people I've sat down with over the years, Christians. People who, you know, all of a sudden, it seems, are involved in some sin and you're warning them and you're telling them and you're, you know, and all of this and you can see that the fear of God is no longer in them. They, they love God, they claim to love God, they, they say they're still Christians, they, they wanna go to church, they wanna even serve God, but they won't repent of their sin, they won't do the right thing and there's absolutely no fear of God. It's very, very, it's frightening to me that we can get to that place. He says your own wickedness will correct you. If we stay with the analogy I've been using, if you were to choose to drink that stagnant amoeba-filled water over fresh, pure fountain water, your own decision would catch up to you. You'd be choosing dysentery over health. Yet every day we have a tendency to drink from the world's cisterns. We need to let this illustration sink in. Allow me to gross you out for a moment if I haven't already. I've compared this to amoebic dysentery, so let's talk about amoebic dysentery. Amoeba are those little parasites that are found in contaminated food or drink. They enter the body through the mouth when the contaminated food or drink is swallowed. And so uh, then they get into your digestive system where they take up residence and they start to build their little colonies. Amoebic dysentery is passed on by careless or negligent hygiene, usually 
contaminated water is involved. I know when we're overseas, we have to remind everybody salads washed with contaminated water are a common method of spreading. You know, you're over there, you're, you're, you know, all of it's bottled water, you're brushing your teeth with bottled water, then you go to some crazy local restaurant and eat a salad. What do you think they wash that salad with? Yeah, that's right, amoeba. Now here are the symptoms of amoebic dysentery, just in case you are feeling a little bit queasy this morning. Weight loss, anemia, indigestion, intermittent diarrhea with foul-smelling stool that may be preceded by constipation, dehydration, blood and mucus in the stool, gas and abdominal bloating, abdominal cramps and tenderness, fever, fatigue, and chills. By the way, these are listed as the mild early symptoms it gets much, much worse. I'll leave your imagination to figure the rest of it out. Now, I mentioned the Samaritan woman at the well to whom Jesus offered living water that would satisfy her spiritual thirst. If you're familiar with the story, you remember that by the time she encountered Jesus, she'd already been married five times and she was currently living in sin with a sixth man. She was thirsting for something, wasn't she? Something real, something genuine for a relationship that was good. But she was settling for what the world was offering her. She was going about it the way the world did, looking for things in the relationship that the world said she should find. Many of us can look back on our lives before encountering Jesus and we recognize foul, polluted sources that we were frequenting to try to satisfy our thirst. I always think it's funny that uh, your favorite bar is called a watering hole. Yeah, it is a watering hole. It's a stagnant watering hole. It's a polluted watering hole. And so there we were at one of these sources one of these polluted cisterns drinking, trying to find satisfaction, created in the image of God, wanting companionship, wanting a joy, wanting something and not knowing what it was. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I am what you were created for. Only I can fill you with the living water that satisfies. Ah, but that's not always the end of the story. Like the Jews in Jeremiah's day, we can later exchange that living water that once was so fresh and exciting to us for old stagnant pools we used to drink from or we sometimes discover new stagnant pools in our stupidity. Think before you drink is my motto. Don't you like that? That'd be cool. It'd be a great bumper sticker for Calvary Chapel. Think before you drink. I don't know how that would go across, but anyway... Back to our dysentery comparison, which I love. One medical source stated, the incubation period is highly variable, may be as short as a few days, as long as several months, or even a year. Just because I'm not showing symptoms of spiritual dysentery doesn't mean the foul waters I'm drinking from aren't affecting me and won't eventually overwhelm me. It takes time for symptoms to erupt because God is patient and God is a pleader, remember. Don't take his pleadings as weakness. And so it's up to each of us to identify if there are any cisterns we are frequenting. Some of them could be very subtle. They even might be things that are considered liberties for some people, but would poison us. God appraised the cisterns of Judah, and we should do the same. I don't want to end on that note, though. Let's instead recall the invitations of Jesus to enjoy living water in an endless supply. 
God forsaken remains your fountain. One author said this, God wants to become the living water coming into you, enlivening you, empowering you, strengthening you to live a life for his purposes. What is the ultimate goal of this drinking of God as living water? It is that God would have a people on earth that express him fully, something that comes out of Christ and is Christ as his full expression on the earth. The cisterns of the world are all about our own satisfaction, but when we drink from them, it makes us sick, spiritually sick. This fountain of living water not only satisfies us, it does so by flowing through us, out from us to others who desperately need to know God to see him revealed on the earth. In the story we've referenced a few times already where Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. Two characters in that story, you know, at the beginning. Jesus and the woman at the well. Who would you and I be in that story? Would you be the woman continually drawing water that cannot satisfy, wasting your life seeking some fleeting personal satisfaction that you're never going to achieve because you don't know the living God? Or would you be Jesus, the spirit-filled man or woman offering the living water? Well, of course you'd be Jesus, right? Not so fast. You would be Jesus, but you have to think about Jesus at the well for a minute. In a itinerant ministry, at one point he said, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, I don't have really any place to lay my head at night. Even the trip to Samaria, not really his idea. His father in heaven said, I need you to go through Samaria. He told his disciples, we need to go through Samaria. They didn't want to go through Samaria. His disciples are a whole nother story. But he said, no, we have to go through Samaria. How much Jesus knew about why, we don't know. But they went there. His disciples went to get some supplies. He thought he'd catch some rest by the well. Just hang out by the well, get some much needed rest. You read the gospel, sometimes I wonder if Jesus even slept for three and a half years because he's ministering all day and then praying all night. So he's getting some rest when he hears the footfalls of this woman. And his father says, I want you to minister to this gal, Samaritan woman that really doesn't like Jews. And she's pretty testy. She's pretty sarcastic with the Lord. He receives a word of knowledge about how many husbands she had and all of that, and it blows her mind. But really, Jesus, you know, it's not, I want to say this and, and, and have it be taken wrong, but it's not easy being Jesus. It was a life of sacrifice and humility and obedience. And, and though he was in Samaria on the road to somewhere else, he was always on the road to the cross. And so we want to be Jesus in this story, but in order to do that, we have to live a life that is more sacrificial every day. Now, we don't have to be itinerant preachers. We don't have to give away all of our possessions. There's no place in the Bible that says that. We don't have to live the way Jesus lived in that sense, in a vow of voluntary poverty. But I think you should recognize, and I should recognize that really, the Christian life on the earth is a life of continual sacrifice And the more I sacrifice and the more I obey, it seems like the more that flow of living water comes through me, touching the lives of other individuals. And so I can't can't really get to a point where I'm comfortable and bloated because I just keep taking water in. God says, my water is a flow of water. 
And so, you know, it's not about, hey, I read the word and I, I stock up on water and I hydrate. The way we hydrate is by serving others. I think a lot of times Christians, myself included, we suffer from mild, chronic, spiritual dehydration because we think we're taking in, but God says, that's a whole nother issue, a subject. I want to be a flow of water through you to others so that others come to you to drink. And in order for that to happen, you're gonna have to be in a place at a time where I say to serve them and you're gonna have to lay your life down and take up your cross daily. And so it's a life of sacrifice, but it's a life that is promising a reward. Sometimes deferred. In fact, most of our reward is deferred. The question is, do I trust the Lord enough to wait for my deferred reward? And the answer, of course, is yes. Let's pray.